Well, thanks, Heather, for uh, lighting and the uh, singers and musicians. It's um, always very good to uh, come to worship, isn't it? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is a lamp under our feet and a light under our path. And Lord, we commit this time to you this morning and pray that that might be really our very own experience this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder how your week's been this week. Pretty good? A bit rough in places, maybe? Well, I've been away for a few days and I missed the motorbikes yesterday morning. But I did catch a glimpse of them coming through Kahuna yesterday afternoon. Um, but anyway, I missed out on my covetous walk amongst the motorbikes yesterday morning. So, so that was a good escape, wasn't it? Um, and I also missed out on the school, the uh, Christian College presentation night. Uh, it's the first one I've missed for a long while. Did that go well? Yeah, a few nods, that's good. Well, um, in place of that, I had the most enjoyable night celebrating a grandson's high school graduation um, at a uh, dinner over at Yakandanda uh, with family and some of the uh, the students and the staff from the Grace Christian College. And uh, incidentally, my grandson was the only Year 12 student in that college and they spoke, the teachers spoke about the pioneering of, of, of the school going into year 12. He was by himself and uh, his father was actually the teacher for a few of his subjects. So, <laughs> so, so, so it wasn't very much different to the homeschooling that the kids had had for years before. Um, but I would say that even more significant was able to be able to spend about Three days, a total of about three days, uh, just reading the word and praying and making a few notes and even going over on the bus to uh, Wodonga on uh, Wednesday afternoon. And what a blessing it is. You know, the Bible is an amazing book. It's an amazing book from many points of view. But I wonder if in your reading, if you've ever had some passage of scripture just burst into your minds. You know, something that really grabs a hold of you and you just can't let it go. Um, and I wonder how we process that. What do we make of these reoccurring instances of scripture? Uh, this is not a Gideon meeting, but I can't help but say this, but in the Gideon ministry there is a wonderful reoccurring verse that... Uh, so often comes to us by the way of testimonies. And that's what God says in Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So encouraging, you know, when we go to high schools, secular high schools, to present Year 7s with New Testaments. We are very, very restricted what we can say in those circumstances. We're not allowed to tell the kids anything of the gospel message of the book. But we know that if the kids read, the, uh, the Lord will speak uh, to them through his word. So recurring verse, maybe God is claiming our attention um, to guide us in the course of a career, perhaps, or any choices for that matter. It could even be the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of something that's out of order, something that's sinful. And in this regard, yesterday morning when I was returning from Wodonga by bus, I was reading again and I came to this verse in James 3 verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers or preachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. We all do. And I'm preaching to myself. 
as well as to you this morning, and I want you to understand that. But as we look into this this morning, we come across things probably that are pretty harsh, some things that might be confronting to us, and uh, it might seem sometimes that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards once preached to his congregation. Yes, it's like that in places. In the Old Testament, we often see this, that we are in the hands of a angry God. <clears throat> but we're also sinners in the hands of a loving God, and that is really great news. We are sinners in the hands of a loving God. We recognise, of course, that God is a God of judgment as well as forgiveness. Paul in Romans chapter 11 says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. So a few, a few years ago, a friend put this question to me. Why are these verses coming back so often? And so we began to discuss what it could mean. Perhaps reoccurring attention to scripture means that God is saying something. God is saying something to the community. God is saying something to the church family. Or maybe he's saying something to the individual. The passage of scripture that Heather read to us this morning from Genesis chapter 26 was regarding Isaac and the redigging of wells. I think it's good to always go back to some some background. It's good to mention the um, first mention of a thing, of a subject in the Bible. And I remember that uh, talking to Dr Ian Paisley, uh, the minister from uh, Ireland and a member of the Parliament of UK for a while, and he told me about the law of the first mention. Hadn't heard it from anyone before. But it's a very important principle in scripture interpretation because every doctrine in the Bible can be traced back to Genesis. It is indeed the seed, point, the seed plot of the whole Bible. I know we're familiar with the opening of the fountains of the deep and the deluge that came down from the heavens in Noah's flood day. Uh, I think this is a little bit different to the wells that we want to consider today. And uh, the first reference to the well is in Genesis 21 and verse 19. And God opened Hagar's eyes to see the well of water. Well, why was Hagar here? Well, there was conflict in Abram's tents. Two mothers, two boys, and a frustrated father. And Hagar was packed off with her son. But God provides for Hagar by opening her eyes to see a well of water. And God heard the voice of the lad, and then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Rise up, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the well, the uh, gave the lad a drink. Back in Genesis chapter 16, we find that, uh, yes, in uh, Genesis chapter 16, we find Hagar at a spring of water. And some translations, it's uh, regarded as a, it's, uh, as a fountain of water. But it was a place where God revealed himself as an outcast to Hagar. Hagar's son Ishmael had been born to Abraham and Sarah was jealous because of Hagar. And Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her presence. God met her and told her to go back and serve her mistress. And, of course, 
we read that that relationship didn't really last. And as we've already read in, in Genesis chapter 21, 21, there is recorded that further conflict. I think these springs and these wells remind us of broken personal relationships. And this happens occasionally, both within the church family and in the outside community. Just a little bit of a side to this in the mention of springs. I remember out at the eastern end of Warburton Range, there was a, there was a permanent spring and it was a, a place where the men would, would meet and collect water. It was a sacred site and the women and children were not allowed near it. Uh, and to mark it as a, as a sacred site, there was a stone formation. Well, just a couple of years before I was out there, there was a white fellow came along. He was a sandalwood cutter from down south. And he took a stone from the foundation, from the formation there. And the spring dried up and it never, ever ran again. It was a permanent water supply. But just disturbing something in the spirit world had caused it to dry up. Strange things can happen in the spirit world sometimes. And we shouldn't... Uh, we shouldn't discount those sort of things. Right, so we come to, uh, to another place, so just the next, the next bit along. Um, right, here we come, yeah, to a well of oath. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven new lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba because the two of them had swore an oath there. So, okay, there was a little bit of uh, a problem in that area, but um, um, Abraham settled it with an oath. The place Beersheba probably rings a bell with us. As we've learnt just recently again about the charge of Beersheba of 100 years ago, the 4th and the 12th Light Horse, um, Australian Light Horse uh, Regiment. And you know, the thirst of the horses for water ensured the success of the charge and indeed a change in world history. I think we're seeing some of that being unfolded today even. But I'd like you to keep the thirst for water in your minds. But this well of oath was a well of restored relationships. And, of course, that means that any relationship can really be restored. Well, there's another well that we're familiar with, and that is the well of prayer. And again, a very very um, brief mention of this. It's about Isaac's servant praying about identification of a wife for, for um, Isaac. Well, we read from verse 11, 24. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by well of water at even time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it, be, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, she says, and she says, drink, and I will give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abram's brother, came out with her pitcher on the shoulder. And she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hands and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Well, the well of prayer. So we have seen wells as locations, uh, and in each case the water is the attraction, 
We've seen that well, a well is a focal point of a community, the place where herdsmen brought their mobs of cattle for the evening and a place where shepherds would bring their flocks of sheep, a place where the women of the community would come to draw water for the family. <clears throat> it was indeed <clears throat> a meeting place in the evening and water is shown to be a very important commodity throughout scripture, both physically and spiritually. We should value the water that we have at our disposal. That's a great commodity. <clears throat> but when we get to the reoccurring passage that my, uh, that my friend and I discussed, <clears throat> we read this passage again, <clears throat> just as a reminder. From Genesis 26:15. Now the Philistines had stopped up the wells which his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham and his father, and they had filled them with earth. <clears throat> and Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than I. And then uh, Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. <clears throat> and Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham and his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. Then they dug another well and they quarrelled over that one. Verse 22, and he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. Then they went up from there to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my, Abraham, for my servant Abraham's sake. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what, do we th what do we think of all this? <clears throat> well, Abraham was a foreigner <clears throat> in, in uh, Philistine country and he was increasing with wealth. The same with Isaac, he was also increasing in wealth. And the Philistines felt threatened and imposed sanctions. In this case, the cutting off the supply of water by filling the wells with earth. And you want to see the, the conflict here. Digging out of wells and digging new mells, wells. Herdsmen of Gera claiming water as ours. And Isaac digs another one. More quarrels. But eventually, there is an agreement. Sanctions are still a strategy today, aren't they, between nations? Well, there was wells of conflict, the breaking down of relationships in the business world. But here again, in the end, there was some reconciliation. So how can we unpack this? How can we understand what is going on here? Well, the wells seem quite prominent here. And I can share with you perhaps something about wells from personal experience. Perhaps you know all about wells. Perhaps there's something new to learn today. And we can learn something new every day because um, coming back from Wodonga yesterday, we, um, <coughs> we stopped at Ichuka for refreshments and... Uh, I wanted to have a chat to the driver and uh, to start off a, a chat. And anyway, I said, how come these buses can negotiate these narrow, narrow streets around these tight corners and around these, these um, roundabouts? They seem to go around so easy. And he said, oh, yes, he said. Yeah, he said, there's a bit of a trick here. <coughs> he said, we turn the front wheels... And the back wheels go this way. And so they come around. He said, actually, it's a lot easier to drive than a car. I thought, well, that's marvellous, isn't it? <laughs> you, know, you learn something every day. So uh, I think we might be able to learn something about, um, about wells today. One of my responsibilities as missionary and mechanic when we arrived out at Warburton Rangers was the water supply for about 460 people, and this meant wells and windmills. And this was quite new to me. It wasn't part of our training at Melbourne Bible Institute. 
And so it would be helpful if we draw a picture of a well. And our wells were not quite like this. And my drawing's not very good, so I borrowed this one. Uh, we didn't have any of this structure up the top here. We had a bit more like this um, for the digging of the wells. And when we, when we dig a well, um, we need to be able to, to determine, or you hope to determine beforehand, if there's any water underneath. And um, I had a, a fellow from Ernabella come across to Warburton once, and we were just sitting down in the compound there talking with him, and he said, he said, are you always tired? And I said, yeah, I'm always tired. And, uh, well, it was just part of the work. You were just tired. There was so much to do. But he said, he said, oh, you're tired. He said, you sleep over there. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you see these trees, these big gum trees. There's some leaning this way and there's some leaning this way. And it goes right past your house. And there's a underground water flowing right through there. And it's weakened the fibres of the, of the trees and weakens you as you sleep. Uh, we didn't change house, by the way, but anyway... <laughs> So we've got to determine if there's water there. And uh, this same fellow actually tried to teach me how to use the wires for water dividing, and I wasn't too sure about this. He showed me how it worked, and fair enough, yeah, there was water here. There's water went right through over that way. And uh, he said, oh, you try. So he gave me his wires, and I walked across nothing at all. And he said, well, I'll hold the wire in one hand, you hold the wire in the other hand and you hold my hand and you walk, you walk across. I said, oh, this is all right. And away, away we went. And the wire come around like this. And uh, I was able to find a bit of water, but later on I thought, I don't really understand this. I just wonder whether there's something evil involved in this. There might be, there might be a scientific um, explanation to it, but... To me, there was the thought that this might be sinful and if it can't be a faith, it must be sinful to me. I had to let it go. I couldn't hang on to that. But there's ways of finding water and the well must be placed to intercept the flow. It needs to be stable ground, reasonably stable ground and preferably rock at the bottom where the water is. And so when we dig down, down the first part where the, where, the, where the topsoil is, we need to put in timbers. And, uh, and the timbers are put in like a log cabin. So they create a little wall around, stop the topsoil from falling down. And it might happen to go down maybe four foot, six feet or whatever through, through the, uh, the topsoil. And uh, the wells were always built... Uh, about two metres wide by about one, um, two metres by one metre. So you could get down the bottom and use a pick and shovel and fill the bucket and all that sort of stuff, all practical stuff. Um, but once the, once the well was dug, then it had to be covered. Uh, it had to be covered to stop the birds from getting in. It had to be covered to stop kangaroos from falling in and uh, you know Len Bedell from the gun barrel, gun barrel highway fame he, uh, he visited us at Warburton quite a few times and, and uh, one day he was there and um, a bullock had fallen down a well it wasn't one that we got water from it was really close to the mission a bullock had fallen down there and uh, it was good to have Len Bedell around because he had trucks with winches on and he was able to get the, the bullock out um, and uh, yeah so they need to be covered, adequate protection at the top and uh, the problem was with this well that had the bullock in, it was upstream from the water flow that was coming through and so that well had to be cleaned out we didn't want the rest of the water contaminated I think there's a lesson there you know that um, one polluted well could affect all of those others. 
But the cover also hindered dust from being blown down into the well, but it wasn't completely sealed because it was just sheets of corrugated iron with some logs across the top. And uh, the well also had to be deep enough to intercept the flow of water. Down the bottom, we usually had quite a, a large area underneath that was uh, uh, hewn out of the rock to provide a little more uh, capacity down there for the, for the well, for the water. And uh, <coughs> when we got down there, you had to use some gelignite to, to uh, blast the rock. And just a little, just a quarter of a stick of jelly was enough. You didn't want to blow the whole thing up and fill the well in. <laughs> so we so just a bit of jelly. Now I can tell you some stories about jelly. Uh, I won't now, but anyway. <laughs> Ask me later about the stories about jelly. And, uh, yeah. But you've got to use the water. The water flowing into the well will, will just help to increase the flow. But it needs maintenance. It doesn't look after itself. If the water's not there, the pump wears out and it needs attention. Our wells all had windmills on them with the centre column coming right down to the bottom, down to the pump. And the windmill columns were two-inch galvanised pipe and uh, with the pump down the, down the bottom. <laughs> and uh, when we had to do any work, the bucket with the tools and that was was lowered down into the into the well first on a rope. Uh, and uh, then it was a matter of climbing down the well on the windmill column and uh, holding on. Ropes were too hard to hold on to um, and they were a bit flexible. <laughs> but the windmill column was good because you could go down like this on the windmill column, have feet out the side onto the, onto the wells to... Um, to give you a little bit of stability to go down, and that was fine. You get down the bottom. But a well may run out of water, and it could be that the well is blocked. It could have been blocked deliberately like we saw the Philistines did with Isaac. Uh, it could be just neglect. It could be silt from the dust up at the top, uh, settling in the cracks in the rocks and stopping the water flowing. Oh, yes, and we always had a reflector too. It's a bit dark down a well. I just got a little tin here, little salmon tin. And uh, we'd have some Aboriginal men, always had Aboriginal men with me. Wherever we went out there, you always had Aboriginal men. And so they would use a tin um, and reflect the sun's light down the well. This tin is not bright enough, wouldn't do the job. But a, um, a lid off a um, sunshine powdered milk tin was quite large and really good reflector. And a mirror was even better still, but it all had to be clean. You can't reflect light off a dirty surface. I think we've got a spiritual lesson there too, haven't we? If you want to reflect the light of the Lord. We must be clean to be able to do that. But there can be dangers in maintaining water supply with wells and windmills. I think I've got time to tell this story. Just beside our little house, little stone cottage, was a windmill about... 30 feet high, whatever that is in metres, I'm not sure, about 30 feet high, reasonably high, and uh, uh, it ran out of oil up on the top in the gearbox and it used to make a terrible noise and it was close to our bedroom and it keeps us awake at night, just scratching and scraping up there, so it was necessary to go up and uh, put some more oil in. And uh, if you understand windmills, they've got a big fan. And when you get up there, they're pretty big. And, uh, and the tail out the back to keep the, keep the wheel in the direction of the wind. And we'd go up there and we'd get a piece of rope and tie the, tie the tail to the, to the, to the wheel, to the, to the fan thing. 
and work on the thing. Well, you know what happened that day? A whirlwind came along. <laughs> uh, no occupational health and safety. Nobody knew about safety harness or anything. But could you imagine being up the top there with a safety harness and this thing whizzing around? That wouldn't have been a good idea at all. So here we were, hanging on to the tail, running around the little platform at the top. <laughs> I tell you what, there are some hazards in looking after water. Very real hazards. Please keep that in mind. Hazards. And another day, oh, now when, when uh, Dorothy and I were out at Warburton in 19... And uh, 1910, uh, I mean, sorry, 2010, uh, 2010, <laughs> getting my centuries mixed up. A fellow came, a fellow came up to me and said, well, I said, I used to help you in the truck. And, uh, he was wanting to sell me one of his paintings. And I said to him, yeah, I said, where's that well? And he said, Snakewell. Snakewell. Well, that's interesting. I said, I'll have to buy that because I had a personal encounter with Snakewell. And uh, we're up in the timber. We, we went down the timbers, past the timbers, working down the bottom here. And down the bottom, there was a couple of geckos. Uh, centipedes were pretty common down there. A uh, little sand goanna that had got trapped down there. And those, those things have been collected later and taken up the bucket with the, with the tools. I was working down the back there. And one of the men said, Mit Orton, snake in the timbers. <laughs> and I said, leave him there. I don't want him down here. <laughs> uh, anyway, we went on. It was, it was a distraction, you know. <laughs> quite a, quite a distraction in cleaning out the well. Well, well, well. <laughs> the pump was fixed and it was ready to go up top. And I said to the fellas, Snakey Wanderda, where's that snake? And they said, Snakey Gunganari, Snakey's gone to sleep. So that's good. I said, you leave him asleep, I'm coming up. So... <laughs> Right up through the top, I didn't see the stake. Thankful for that. <coughs> I'll give you another one. We've got a bit of time. <coughs> At Mount Margaret Mission, the wells were much deeper there, about 60, 60, 70 foot deep. Windmills, yes, and deep wells. When we went down through the well, there'd be a wooden platform over this side of the collar. Down here, there'd be another one. Down here, another one. The length of a standard galvanised iron pipe down each one. <clears throat> so that's all right. The bucket of tools had gone down. <clears throat> and I went down. Yeah, the first joint was just below the surface. And I grabbed hold of the column under there. And I did a fireman's descent down a slippery pole. Down like that. 22 feet. And praise the Lord, I landed on one of those wooden platforms. If I had gone down another 20 foot, my hands would have been still around the pipe and probably taken off with the wooden platform that surrounded that little bit there. So <laughs> I think there's something here too, you know, that... When we're cleaning out wells, the Lord will protect us from harm. He'll protect us from harm. And now we come, I think, to the main point to be addressed as a possible reason for reoccurrence of drawing attention to wells. We need to clean out the debris. There's no room for foreign objects down a well. Kids out at Warburton used to love taking the, the, the sheets of iron off the, the top of the well and dropping stones in to hear the, flash, the splash when they got to the bottom. And you'd go down there and you'd find a heap of stones in the bottom. It was necessary sometimes to go down the well with a piece of wire 
and just scrape the silt out of the cracks in the rock to get the water flowing. The blockage must be removed. One day, Jesus comes to the focal point of a community in Samaria. He's weary. He's walked from Judea and he sits down at Jacob's well. It's not the time of day when the townsfolk would normally come for water, but God has a person on the way. Well, as Heather read for us in in John chapter 4, we see here that Christ reveals himself to a Samaritan woman. And when she approached to get water, Jesus said, give me a drink. And he also said, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. And here is the spiritual connection that Jesus makes. And I think it brings it all, brings all together what we have spoken about wells, brings it together in a powerful message of human relationships. The woman is thirsting for this water, but there's something in her lifestyle that needs housekeeping done for a start. Jesus brings her attention to something that could be a hindrance to worshipping God in spirit and in truth. She needs to take that piece of wire and to clean the silt out of the cracks in her life. The dust of immorality had settled in her life and no living water can flow to become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. She needs the light from above to shine into her life. Relationships must be sorted out. Restoration with her fellow women who despised her need to occur. She no longer needs to be an outcast and she needs to tell her menfolk about Jesus. Yes, Jesus had a better life for her and for them. And at the conclusion of this story we read, and then they, that's the townsfolk, said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Yes, but those townsfolk needed a little testimony from the, from the woman, from the well, to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that that is our commission as people of the family of God. We need to say just some little thing perhaps that'll start to bring a person to the Lord Jesus Christ and to learn about him. You know, Isaiah is a wonderful book. Isaiah is a good book if you've got the time to sit down and read it all in one sitting. It's a wonderful book. Isaiah 12 verse 3 says, Therefore with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. It's a joyful thing to draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then again in Isaiah 55 verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. I'm wondering if you are thirsty this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. So now come with me to John chapter 7, verse, 30, 7, verse 37. And Pastor Bob has preached 
through a long way into the Gospel of John. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time repeating some of that. But here Jesus emphasises, he who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I think the most important word here is me, that is Jesus, the most important word. There are three other words that stand out here. One is thirst, and thirst is a recognised need, a craving for something that we don't have. Come is an action word, it's an act of faith. To come to Christ means that we do with our heart and our will what we would do with our feet if he were standing here. If coming to Christ him, it is coming to Christ himself. Not baptism, not the Lord's table, or even join the church, although those things are important. It is Christ alone. It is to Christ we come. And, of course, we must drink. And I believe this means that, yes, we, come, we thirst and we come, but we drink, making Christ our own. It means the appropriation of the provisions of grace. It means taking on board all that Jesus has done for us and taking in all that he wants us to be. And what was the result in uh, verse 38 of chapter 7? He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In John 4, it was water springing up Godward to everlasting life. And here in John 7, it is an outflow of blessing to others. And right in the midst of this is Jesus saying to us, he who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I guess the majority of us here this morning have been through the John 4 experience when we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there would be different experiences as to how that happened. You know, I find with a lot of cases with um, Sun Neil, who works amongst um, Asian students in Melbourne, that um, uh, they need to study the gospel. And they'll study for about 12 months before they're even prepared to make any decision at all to follow Christ. But once they do make a decision to follow Christ, they are just so keen to witness to their fellow students about the gospel and the joy of their salvation. To me, it was a spiritual battle during a Saturday night at one of our Korean conventions, trying to sleep on a straw-filled mattress in the Methodist Hall over here. Uh, I'd heard the gospel the day before, on that, on, during that day, but I hadn't made any decision. And there was a spiritual battle going on during the night, trying to decide whether I'd respond to the appeal the next day and give my life to Christ. Well, you could have a different story, many, many different stories as how we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and experience that infilling of the flow of the water of life in our lives. John 7, it may be a bigger challenge, the outflow of blessing to others. Uh, do we need to ask the question of ourselves individually? Is there a blockage? the inflow of spiritual life that's hindering all that Jesus wants to do in and through us? Are we holding back the outflow? I don't want you to think this morning that we are in the hands of an angry God. But we are in the hands of a loving God, a God who wants to gently lead us into fullness of life. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus introduced. When he said about rivers of water flowing out from us, he spoke, this he spoke, 
concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, there's definitely a relationship to the Spirit in what we were talking about this morning, the Holy Spirit. The wells that we've looked at speak of conflict, of broken relationships. And as I look around this morning, I see a vacant seat here, the vacant seat over there. And over 30 years, 30 odd years of eldership, and some of those odd years have been pretty odd, I tell you. But over 30 years, you see people coming and going. You see how young people go down to, to various uh, places of education. You see people moving on to different areas of service, different jobs and things like that. But what I'm talking about this morning is the people that used to sit here. The people we see around town, the people would never darken church at all because of broken relationships that have occurred way in the past. Many different things can cause a broken relationship. It can happen so easily. Misunderstandings, gossip, slander, maybe just a misinterpretation of a tone of voice. But there can be unhealed relationships over many years. Sometimes it might be immorality. Sometimes it might be one of the big sins that causes the problem, what, what we tend to think of as big sins. Some things might be those that are just so readily accessible by computers and iPhones and iPads. Pornography or chasing after the things of the world that are incompatible in the life of a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is longing for you and I to be free from the burden of our own sin and the hurt that we have caused or suffer at the hands of others. And how can we resolve that hurt? I think it means being fair dinkum with God. It means accepting the conviction of the Holy Spirit just as coming and drinking to satisfy our thirst required action on our part, so in the spiritual, the Holy Spirit must be allowed to do his work of conviction. We must make room for him, and we can only be filled if we are emptied of the old self. There is a need to unclutter our lives from the things that keep us in bondage. I'm sure that freedom in Christ is what we yearn for, but there is a price to pay. I know we're a pretty reserved bunch of people here this morning, and that's good. And all things need to be done decently in order. But it may mean, it just may mean walking across the room here to confess to someone about a long-standing grudge. I saw that happen at Mount Margaret years ago during a communion service. It may mean for you a walk along the levee bank this afternoon with the Lord, dealing with the hindrances that are holding it back. It may mean coming out here this morning to be prayed for by a brother or sister in Christ. Some of us can remember this. Back in 2011, uh, Prayer Mountain in South Korea, these little grottos where some of us spent, well, nearly an hour. I think we were a lot of an hour here, but by the time we got ourselves organised, it was about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, shut up in a little place. And that was the inside of mine, just a little little place, just room to sit down in, uh, not very high, little window up the top of the door, 
to give us a bit of light in. And I think that was a ventilator down the bottom there to give us a bit of air. So, for me, it was a it was the place where a deep hurt was healed. It was a place where, again, I experienced a refilling of the Holy Spirit of God, a place where God recommissioned me for service. In my little bag there, I had a few Gideon New Testaments and we were probably more than halfway through the week and I hadn't attempted to share a New Testament with anybody on my trip. I was convicted about that and asked the Lord to help. And, yeah, visiting a university in that afternoon, I tried the fellas, but they were too busy listening to their music and all, this, all the rest of it. There was a group of girls, probably about six or seven of them, and I just handed a New Testament over. Would you like one of these? Oh, yes. I told them what it was. I said, I've got one for each of you if you want one. I oh, know one will be enough. We'll share it and read it. And after that, there was the opportunity to do that uh, with several um, uh, restaurant uh, waiters and so on. But this was a holy place. We were told when we were, were going there that some people would go in and they would spend hours, maybe days, even weeks, fasting and praying for the Lord to deal with them. It was a place, therefore, I thought was appropriate to take off shoes. But I used to think that that was just respect for a holy God. But last Easter down at Belrave, I learned something different about taking off of shoes. At the burning bush, God told Moses to take off his shoes. Freeing the children of Israel from Egypt and leading them to the promised land was God's plan and he was going to use Moses in the process. And here, taking off the shoes was symbolic of Moses giving over his work, his walk to God. God was going to go in Moses' shoes. And God accomplished his purposes through Moses, walking together through the difficult path to freedom. When we take off our shoes, our shoes become comes God's shoes to take us where he will. He takes our hands to do his work and he takes our mouth to speak his words. It's all about abandoning my ways or our ways and giving all over to God for his ways and that is the path to freedom and fruitful service. So whatever it is that the Lord is telling you how to respond today, do it for the glory of God. And this picture here reminds me of uh, old Will Wade. Will and Iris Wade, they went out to Warburton Ranges, travelling about 380 miles by camel to establish the mission work out of Warburton Ranges. And when he retired, he went down to Perth and lived there. 16 Anthony Street, South Perth, and we were privileged to live for a while down there. And in the backyard was a little corrugated iron shed, very small, not much bigger than this little plot that we had over there in South Korea. There was an open window and a wooden bench in front and an old kitchen chair. Will Wade used to get up in the very early hours of the morning and he would spend time, a long time, hours in that old shed with his Bible, praying for the Lord to help him to reach out to the people of Perth. And so after that he'd go into the city with a bag full of tracts and he'd be giving tracts to people and talking to them about the Lord. But it all started in his little shed at home. 
Perhaps we need to find a place like that to shut ourselves away from the world, to shut ourselves away from the distractions. And I tell you, there'll always be a snake in the timbers to distract us, to pull our attention away from the things that God wants us to do. Be aware of that. Uh, but we resist the devil and he'll flee from us. Well, we're going to pray in a minute. Before I do, I'd like to read to you an old song. One that we used to sing here a long time ago. I don't know whether anybody can remember. In the secret of his presence, how my soul delights to hide. Oh, how precious are the lessons which I learned at Jesus' side. Earthly cares can never vex me, neither trials lay me low. For when Satan comes to tempt me to the secret place, I go. When my soul is faint and thirsty neath the shadow of his wing, there is cool and pleasant shelter and fresh and crystal spring. And my Saviour rests beside me as we hold communion sweet. If I tried, I could not utter what he says when thus we meet. Only this I know. I tell him all my doubts, my griefs and fears. Oh, how patiently he listens and my drooping soul he cheers. Do you think he never reproves me? What a false friend he would be if he never, never told me of the sins which he must see. Would you like to know the presence of the sweetness of the secret of the Lord? Go and hide beneath his shadow. This shall be your reward. And wherever you leave the silence of that happy meeting place, you will bear the shining image of the master in his face. There was a song that we sung so often at the Warburton Rangers revivals back in 1983. And I want to read a couple of verses of this, of this particular song and then I suggest that we spend some time in silent prayer before I close in prayer. And this song implies that we make room for the Holy Spirit. He will not invade us without our permission. We need to make room for him. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Come, sweet spirit, I pray. Come with your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Come with your light and your wisdom. Come in your own gentle way. Let us pray silently for a while. Thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus, to Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. Help us to make Jesus Lord in every area, every facet of our lives. Help us, Lord, to be the people that you want us to be in our church family, supporting one another protecting one another, rebuking one another where necessary. Help us, Lord, to be forgiving, to love and encourage. Fit us, we pray, for reaching out into our community with the love of God, sharing the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the water of life flow into us and out from us to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.